You are listening to the weekly sermon from Elevation Community Church in Blanchester, Ohio. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Phil Nelson. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit myelevationcc.org. We are in a series called Practicing the Ways of Jesus. This series is also guiding the community groups, the real-life community groups uh, who are meeting. Some of them are, are really following it verbatim and, and do, using the resources, and some are actually just using it as a topic for them to dive in deeper to maybe another scripture or another portion of the word. Wherever you are in your groups, uh, I just continue to keep talking about what these practices are doing in your life. Keep talking about where you're feeling resistance, where you're experiencing delight that you never have before in this practice, and where you are experiencing God's nearness. This is where the power of the groups come into play is when you live life together, you encourage one another, but then you connect throughout the week to hold each other accountable, to grow closer to Jesus. And if you're not in a real-life community group, we would love for you to go see Becky at the Welcome Center. We'd love to get you into a group, even though we're, I think we're um, uh, four or five weeks into it. And, uh, but you can just jump on into a group, hopefully, that will fit your schedule and your style. Um, So we're in practicing the ways of Jesus. Why are we doing this? Is this some sort of religious activity that Pastor Phil is trying to pass on? No, it's called spiritual formation. Can you say spiritual formation? Say spiritual formation. It's a glorified, not a glorified, it's a uh, down-to-earth word for a spiritual term called sanctification, which means growing more and more and more like Jesus. It's spiritual formation. And the whole body of the church is designed to actually grow in spiritual formation, to look more like Jesus. So God designed the church through Jesus Christ to have leaders, not to do the work for the church, but to equip and build up the church in spiritual maturity, to look more and more like Christ. Part of the spiritual maturity is set by creating disciplines, and a lifestyle that gives space, say space, to abiding in Jesus. These practices aren't for religious external purposes. These practices are for you to draw closer and closer to Jesus because the closer and closer you draw to Jesus, the more and more you become like him. The more and more you become like him, the more and more people around you are drawn to Jesus. It's that simple. And so Jesus told us in the scriptures, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those of you who don't know that, that's found in many of the gospels. He's talking to a crowd that has been beaten down by religious rules and regulations. And he's saying, if you want to come to the Father, you must come through me. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. So following Jesus through these practices are grounded in truth. It's truth-based not rule-based. These practices are grounded in the way Jesus lived and modeled. We're not going to practice anything that Jesus didn't practice and live out. That's called law. That's called do's and don'ts. And then these practices are simply about creating space to abide, remain, and endure. We've been talking about that in the groups. What does it mean to abide? Well, there's two main words that come from that is remain in Christ, but also to endure in Christ. And friends, something our staff has been learning as we spend time in prayer and devotion every week. Do you know in the crops, we're in the rural Ohio area, the harshest conditions, or shall I say the harsher the condition for a fruit plant the sweeter the fruit becomes. The harsher the conditions, the sweeter the fruit becomes. Why? That has to dig deep into its resources 
in order to survive the harsh conditions. Why do you think God allows the broken sin curse of our world to bring circumstances and trials and tribulation in our life? Because he wants us to go down deep and remaining and abiding and enduring in him so that we produce sweet fruit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Anyone want those? That is a proof of abiding. That is a result of abiding, remaining, and enduring. I remember when I was a young Christian and I just kept shouting to God, If you love me, you will make this easy. If you love me, God, where are you? I have to face trials. And he said, they are to make you more like me. And that's why we can have joy. Like James says, joy. I'm going off my notes. Joy in the midst of trials because it's the perseverance of our faith that draws us closer to Jesus. And we saw through the practice of prayer that often it's not until we hit rock bottom, often it's not until our life is shaken. It's not until really our life begins to fall apart to where we understand without God, this ain't happening. And what does it do? It starts to draw us to pray and seek his face. But when we begin to make it a lifestyle, it doesn't matter in the highs and lows and in between. We know that where we're grounded in is what brings stability. This world is grounded in the temporal. We are grounded in the eternal through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And that is why we must pray is because we are not God and we cannot do this life without our alignment with God, the father, without the salvation of Jesus Christ and without the presence of the Holy Spirit bringing the being of Christ within us for we are in Christ. And so now... I want to introduce to you another practice, another practice that we're going to practice together as a church, as real life communities. This is not to bring condemnation. It's not to bring guilt and what you're doing or not doing. It's even not about that necessarily. It's about who you're anchored to and what you're intentionally intentionally prioritizing. It's who you are aware of and where you're giving your attention in your life. And I want to introduce a book to you. I have, I've talked about this several times. Um, many of you know that uh, I took an uh, a extended medical leave last May. I'm still recovering and starting to rebuild my life because of what I went through, and I'll touch on that a little bit later today. But this book led me to many of the practices, and this is why we now, it led me to, uh, his name is John Mark Comer, and he was a lead pastor for so long, and then he burned out in the mega church and had to rebuild his life, and then he built a church in the most liberal place right now, one of them, Portland, Oregon, and he developed this church so differently than most American churches, and it was based on practicing or apprenticing the ways of Jesus. That's all they focused on in their church. And every single person in their church was part of a community group that went through these practices together. So we developed this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And that's what we're going to talk about today, hurry. It's one thing that we all have in common. We don't know how to slow down. And some of you do it better than others, but this world is spinning out of control. And in this book, he gives some of the practices of getting your life, not just back in balance, but back in rhythm with the heart of the Father. And so I want to just give credit 
to practicingtheway.org. I would love for you to visit that and get all the resources there, but I don't do this often. This is a book you need in your collection, whether it's Kindle or audio book. Um, please, uh, Amazon, just look, uh, put Ruthless Elimination of Hurry or John Mark Comer and get this for you, especially if this message today hits you right here or right between the eyes. This is a book that will help you. And it's grounded in scripture and grounded in a lot of research and history and study about humankind and the rhythm of rest, the rhythm of rest. So I would love for you to open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. Don't put it on the screen yet. Matthew chapter 11, get your phones out if you have them. Hard copies of your Bible are great. And we're just going to look at this passage and start to just dig into what it looks like to rest in God. Rest, I think, is being pulled out of the vocabulary of America, the fabric of who we are. Rest is being pulled out of our industry and businesses. And rest is being pulled out of our schools from one thing to the next thing and this commitment and this event. And with that, then rest is being pulled out of our families. Our families never stop anymore. We never really have quality time together. And that really hinders and damages the family unit, especially when the adolescents become adults and leave. They have no patterns of rest. And so Matthew 11 kind of gives us a key to what rest in the 21st century looks like. So I would love to read this together. Go ahead and put it on the screen now. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary. Is that you? It's me. And carry heavy burdens. And I, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, will give you rest. Some translations say rest for your souls. And actually, I just uh, got ahead of us. It's verse 29. Go ahead. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Yoke is also a burden in that, in that um, uh, biblical settings. But uh, as groups are learning as well, rabbis in that day, they had what they termed a yoke, which was their teaching. And Jesus was saying, my teaching comes from the Father. It's not a religious law or activity that should burden people. It should set you free. And that's what he's saying. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle in heart and you will find rest for your souls. One of the top needs that every human being seek beyond purpose and truth is rest. Rest. Rest for your souls. The late Dallas Willard, was actually a mentor to John Mark Comer. He says this, in Matthew 11 lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall behavior. Wait, no. Adopting his overall lifestyle. Say lifestyle adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, which is true, going the second mile, which is true, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently, and hopefully all true. But then we live uh, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else does. We're adopting tasks or actions, or disciplines, but not a lifestyle. Suffering um, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. 
This is why we have been focusing on following the ways of Jesus, because Jesus' command to all of us were to follow him and be disciples. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple or follower of Jesus, and the purpose of a follower or disciple of Jesus is to apprentice under Jesus. That means you're with Jesus. You're becoming more like Jesus And you're doing what Jesus did. In the 21st century, we see so many people in this country call themselves Christian, but yet there's no time spent with Jesus. And because of that, they're not becoming like Jesus because they probably don't know Jesus. And if they know Jesus, they're not really spending time with him. And they're not doing what Jesus said. So we get all of this weird negative stigma of Christian, Christianity where Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you must look different than the world. If you want to follow me, you must be with me, become more like me, and then do what I do. That's a follower of Jesus. And in order to do that, we don't just adopt the ways of Jesus. We adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Now that... Now that is where the rubber meets the road. That's where life change trumps information. And so the key to this message today is this statement on the screen. If we truly want to experience the life of Jesus, we must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That's why we focused on prayer first. And that's why we're now focusing on rest. A follower of Jesus, one of the biggest markers of a follower of Jesus, and this is hard for me to say because I'm not there yet, is rest for their soul. Not just physical rest, but resting in Christ alone. There's a saying in business books. I don't know if you've went to a conference or maybe you're in business and you even teach this material. And it says every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. That's why you have systems, results. Not getting the results you want to get, check the system of how you're doing it. Here's a quote from John Mark Homer that I love. Ready? If the results you are getting are lousy, anxiety at a simmer, mild depression, high levels of stress. This was me a year ago, guys. I crashed and burned. I hit the pavement. Chronic emotional burnout, little to no sense of the presence of God, an inability to focus your mind on the things that make for your life. Then the odds are very good that something about the system that your life, uh, the system that your life is on is off kilter. The way you've organized your mornings or evening routines, your schedules, your budget, your relationship to your phone, how you manage the resources of your time, money, and attention, etc., something is out of whack. I believe, and so does guys like John Mark Comer and the different guys that kind of are just ringing the bell to wake the church up, I believe that the lack of rest in the Christian life is not just a problem, but it is a spiritual problem. The definition of insanity, do you know it? Doing the same thing over and over and over and over and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Sunday's a little different. And then we go over and over and over and expect different results to be more like Jesus. That's called insanity. But isn't that what we do? Maybe I'm the only one. But I know I live out the spiritual insanity so often in my life if I'm not aware. And I don't stop it and I don't put people in my life to hold me accountable. We get a vision of the kind of life that is possible through Jesus. We go to church, we read a book or listen to a podcast. We catch a glimpse of the kind of life we ache for. 
one of emotional health and spiritual life. Don't you dream about it? Every new year comes, I'm saying, my life is going to be different. It's going to be healthy, and I'm going to see God move in my life. Our gut immediately says, yes, God, I want that life. And we head home from church with all the willpower we can muster in ourselves, and we set out to change. But Monday doesn't even come before we go right back to living the same exact lifestyle. And nothing changes. It's the same cycle on repeat. Stress, tiredness, distraction, repeat. We feel stuck yet again, and we wonder what is missing. Is it just me? If we truly want to experience the abundant life Jesus promises, we must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That means we don't fit our life. We don't fit Jesus around our busy, crazy life. We literally stop and we revolve our life around the patterns and the rhythm and the truth and the ways of Jesus. And we have to figure out what needs to go that is keeping us from this lifestyle. It's not behavior modification. And so today, I want us to look at the key problems that keep us from resting and keep us from this vicious cycle of spiritual insanity. Not keep us from, but keeps us into this vicious, vicious cycle of insanity. And then I want to, at the very end, present a solution. And then next week, we're going to really, really, really unpack the solution. Meyer Friedman was a cardiologist known for theorizing. Have you ever heard of type A's? Any type A's here? (laughs) They theorized the type A and the patterns that type A's exhibit, often which is anger and hurry, And he was saying that back then when he first discovered this diagnosis, he discovered that it was type A's that were more prone to heart attacks. I know. (laughs) Uh, People, after much research and testing, Dr. Friedman coined the phrase, hurry sickness. Hurry sickness referring to the high risk of cardiovascular patients who display a distinct sense of time urgency. Now, I want to let you know that this was stated in medical documents in the 50s. And if there was a diagnosis in the 1950s called a hurry sickness, we are in a predicament in 2023, over 50 years after this diagnosis, that is before iPhones, before internet, before the hustle and bustle of the busyness of the industry, working six, seven days a week kind of life. Here's the theory and the diagnosis of people who are in a hurry. This is our culture today in the 21st century. Look around you, look in the mirror, and look at the patterns of this culture we live in. It's the hurry and the busyness and the frenetic pace of life, the frantic pace of life, of modern life, the noise pollution of city life, the always-on culture. The rising cost of living, more and more people working multiple jobs just to stay afloat. The digital age, come on, now the internet fits in our pocket and goes everywhere we go. Now we deal with the phone never stop buzzing, the constant stream of alerts. Do you know the average person, the average person touches their phone 2,617 times a day, let alone the constant availability and noise of 24-7 news cycle full of outrage, deception, and fear. 
The fight to get even seven hours of sleep when just a bit of over a hundred years ago, people slept for 11 hours. And it was culturally accepted and encouraged to rest more than you worked. Where did the tables get flipped? In spite of all the incredible technical advancements, including smartphones, programmable coffee pots, I love them, and dishwashers and laundry machines and toasters, most of us feel like we have less time, not more. Something is out of whack. And what was innovated to make life easier, we are now left more stressed with our complicated, never-stopping lives, not to mention the polarization of politics, radical individualism, and with its epidemic of loneliness, what some call the greatest health crisis of our time. Hurry keeps us isolated. And according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, Anxiety is the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting over 40 million adults over 18 years of age. That's 19.1% of all of the population, and that doesn't include kids. It's too much to carry. We were never created to be this weary and busy and tired. Not only has hurry and technical culture left us exhausted with no to little margin, let alone some of us in this culture don't even know what the word margin means. It's space to breathe. Space to breathe. Margin. But this sense of hurry has not just robbed us of our energy. It's robbed us of our attention and awareness and who we are or what we're attentive to. What we give our attention is what we eventually become, church. It's about presence. It's What you devote yourself to is what you are attentive to. What you're attentive to is what you're aware of. And we're all over the place. Do you know the average person in the sanctuary, the average person's attention, the attention span of an average person You know what it is? Guess. 10 minutes. 8.25 seconds. That study was done two years ago. Do you know the attention span of a goldfish? Nine seconds. Goldfish is winning, y'all. Something is wrong. I know it's funny and we laugh, but I look at my life and I say, something's got to give when I'm not able to give attention to my kids and I, something's in my body wrong and my body's starting to get sick and I discover I have Lyme's disease and parasites and heavy metals disease. It's all because of the pace of life I was running. And I wasn't adopting my life to the lifestyle of Jesus. I was on the merry-go-round of this world and the worldly culture of what it means to be a minister of God. I was burnt out. And if something didn't viciously change, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today. And we wonder why even looking at the church why leaders in the spotlight of ministry and pastors are dropping like flies to moral, adulterous lives, to complete burnout and mental illness, to just giving up and throwing in the towel. This is not how God designed the church to operate. And sadly, I have, not sadly for this, but I have to apologize to you all I failed. I failed. 
And as a leader and leaders of the church go, so does the people of the church. We are not to do life for you, and we're not called to do ministry for you, but we are called as elders and pastors in the word of God, Titus and 2 Timothy, to be an example to the flock. And I failed in my example. I failed my family. I can't tell you how many hours my kids sacrificed throughout a year of daddy just on the couch sweating Complete brain fog and physical fatigue, paralyzed to the couch six hours a night. I couldn't take loud noises. And so the kids had to learn how to be quiet because daddy was sick. Do you know what that does to a parent? And I've had to ask for forgiveness. I, one thing I said I would never do, I did. It's kind of like Paul, right? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I hate, I do. I remember when I first started ministry here with this uh, church plant with Craig Nisley, our founding pastor. In 2008, we went to a conference with Craig Groeschel from Life Church in Oklahoma. And he said, never, ever, ever, pastors, sacrifice your family on the altar called ministry. I did it. I sacrificed my family. And it took me getting sick and burnt out to realize I should never do that. I sat at a funeral of my life coach, Dave Robinette. Many of you know Spencer, his daddy. And the one thing his boys, Taylor and Spencer said, is always our dad put us before you, the church. And some people in the church don't like that. But that's the way it's supposed to be because a leader's first ministry before this church is his or her family. So I share this message with fear and trembling because I'm just a few steps ahead of you. For some of you, I may be a few steps behind you. But I'm learning what it means to slow down and what it means to say no, even if that means disappointment. And I'm only about 50% of the way back, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. But I'm so much further than I was a year ago. And I'm so grateful. But would you be surprised, thank you, to know that in 2023, one of the biggest sicknesses in the church of God is the sickness of hurry. And I want to read to you 10 symptoms of the hurry sickness developed in the 1950s, and I just want to see maybe if we can relate. Number one is irritability. You get mad and frustrated or just annoyed with people. You have very little margin, emotionally and mentally. You snap. Hypersensitive sensitivity and no elbow bumps, by the way, spouses, because I think we all can relate. So let's let the Holy Spirit convict us today. <laughs> Hypersensitivity. All it takes is a minor comment to hurt your feelings. Do you realize that we live in a world of offense? We're offended by everything. Thank you, social media. We're offended by everything. Hey, I like your hair this morning. Oh, I'm offended. They didn't like, mm-mm. They said they like your hair. Why are we offended? Well, the pastor told me to stand up again for the Nicene Creed. I'm offended. Okay. We're offended by everything. Restlessness. By the way, I checked all these off in May. All of them. All of them. Restlessness. When you try to slow down and rest, you just can't rest. Men were very good at this. Not resting. (laughs) There's always something to do. And our culture has said to sit down and do nothing is not normal. (laughs) Restlessness. Workaholism. I'll just skip that one. 
It's nonstop activity. We have made work our idol. Emotional numbness. You just don't have the capacity to feel another's pain. That was one of the hardest things for me, guys, as a leader of this church, that I was numb to your pain. And I couldn't care for you because I didn't have the capacity to even care for myself. Forgive me. Out of order priorities. They're just all disconnected. And everything that you do just doesn't seem to get you to your purpose and your goals is because everything's out of order. What about number seven? Lack of care for your body. You don't have time to care for your body. We don't have time anymore. And can we all be honest? You know, we, instead of home-cooked healthy meals, we're all going fast, uh, fast meals uh, out to go and not that restaurant um, food is, is always bad, but we're constantly just eating the wrong things. And then we wonder why we gain weight and we get sick multiple, multiple times a year. Regularly, we wake up tired. This was one of the biggest reasons why I went to get help. I was getting 10 hours of sleep some weekends and I felt like I only got two hours of sleep. Some of you are crazy. You think you can go on five hours of sleep. Maybe you're Superman or Wonder Woman and that is great. But I just pray it doesn't catch up to us. I wonder if it would ever do that. I'm not trying to speak that into your life. I'm just saying, where's our margin and where's our rest? Some of you just sleep six hours because that's all your body needs. That's a different story. Uh, We go into escapist behaviors. We escape from our pain. We escape from our trials and our trouble, and we escape it through, I'm just going to be honest, I mean, it even says um, distraction of choice, overeating, overdrinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media, surfing the web, looking at porn. Name your preferred culture narcotic. We numb it. Number nine, the slippage of spiritual disciplines. How are you doing with that? Now, you don't have to be a routine person to be good at disciplines. I am not a routine person at all. My wife says, amen. I'm not. I'm a free spirit. I'm spontaneous and I'm creative, but I value structure and discipline because I know that I need it and it stabilizes me. So don't just make the excuse for not having spiritual disciplines that you're just an extroverted free spirit. We're all grounded in something. And number 10 is isolation. You feel disconnected from God, from others. You're discouraged, disappointed, shame, guilt, and it goes down the road from there. How did you do? (laughs) How'd you assess? Look at these quotes from John Ortberg and John Mark Homer says, not only is hurry toxic to our emotional health and spiritual lives, but it's also symptomatic of much deeper issues of the heart. And John Orberg says, hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered life. So I want to, uh, in about five minutes or less, I want to give you the solution. And we just discovered it earlier on in Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come to me. And I will give you rest for your souls. Christ Jesus is our rest. Let's go and understand the rest that God created into the fabric of creation. All the way back to Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3. And I'll hurry. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation and he rested from all his work. Did God need rest? Not necessarily. He was demonstrating and creating a rhythm in in all of creation. And God blessed. He blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. The word holy means in Hebrew and Greek, set apart. Because it was the day when God rested from all his work. 
Now I want you to see the message version, which is a paraphrased version by a guy named Eugene Peterson. Could we see that of Matthew 11? Are you tired? Worn out on hurry sickness? Burned out on religion? Come to me, Jesus says. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's what I want. But it's called a lifestyle not a resolution or just a simple habit. I want you to look at the practice of the Sabbath, and I want you to see this picture of the uh, Ten Commandments. Picture of the Ten Commandments, because here a lot of times we, we say, well, it's Old Testament, it's old law, they don't matter anymore. Christ came to fulfill the law, and he did. He fulfilled the law by not breaking any of them so that he could be a sinless substitutionary sacrifice for us all. And he came and he even took all the law, all of it, not just the Ten Commandments and all of it, and he put it into two. Love God with everything and love others. But that doesn't mean that it just goes and disappears and we don't have to uphold the value of these. Just look at them. How many others do we say from the pulpit that you can break in the sense of what's called sin? Stay away from that. That's not holy living, even following Jesus and the freedom that he gives. Yes, we're focused on loving him with everything, but how do we know how to love others and love him with everything? Well, it's his law. It's it's what's written on our hearts. And you shall have no other gods before me. That hasn't changed, has it? You shall not make idols. They made idols of materialism. We make idols called social media. We make idols called food. We make idols called ministry and careers and wealth. And, and, and idols in Hollywood. And what we want to be. And we always compare ourselves to everyone. That's an idol, friends. Sports can be an idol if that's what you make your God. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. That's common sense, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, set apart. We'll get to it in a minute. On your father and mother, you shall not murder. We still say that that's not a Christian thing. Just because Christ fulfilled the law, we can murder now. No. You shall not commit adultery. Hey, you're in Christ. Do what you want. No, that's not God's heart and design for his creation. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet. All of these are still within the heart of God. And when Jesus comes and sets us free, he tells us to follow him. That means love what he loves and hate what he hates. Stay away from what he doesn't design for your life. But in this list, guys, in this list, there is only one commandment that he puts a why or an explanation to. Did you notice this? He doesn't explain why not to murder. He doesn't even explain why not to have, uh, not to have idols. He doesn't explain why not to steal. He only explains why we should observe the Sabbath. Look at it. Exodus 20, Exodus 20, look at this. Remember to observe, it may not be on the screen, Exodus 29 through 11. Remember to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You have six days each week from your ordinary work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. Then he goes on to say, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath. And separated it from the other six days. Jesus honored and practiced the Sabbath. And so should we. Honestly, Jesus even said, 
what did he say? The Sabbath was made for men, not people for the Sabbath. Back then in Jesus' day, the Sabbath, they kind of elevated it to just this legalistic term. And they made it more about the Sabbath than the rest that the Sabbath was created to give. In today's society, we kind of need to reverse it. And we are need to start even putting this practice into play. Just 50 years ago, less than 50 years ago, I remember when Sundays went black. There was a gas station, a grocery store, and a 7-Eleven, and a Little Caesars pizza open. Everything else was closed. We need to develop not a legalistic approach to Sabbath, but we need to learn to stop. We need to learn to stop. There's a slide uh, PowerPoint for the, the Sabbath. There's four things that we're looking at for the Sabbath for a 24-hour period, whatever that looks like. And guess what? You get to create it to figure out what brings you rest, what fills your tank, and what draws you closer to God because Jesus is our rest. That's why he says, abide in me 24-7, every day of the week, every moment. But he also says, hey, take a 24-hour break and be with me and stop. So Sabbath is about stopping. It's not about the legalistic, you can't mow your yard or you can't cook a food. You have to plug in the crock pot every Saturday, Sunday. It's saying you stop, then you rest, then you delight what brings you joy and then you worship God. There's this quote and then we're gonna close out. I know it was a lot. But there's this quote I want to read you by Dan Ellender. It says this, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. It is the day we anticipate Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and the day we remember on Monday, Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance. I'll let you read that. Sing, pray, laugh, tell stories. Mom and dad are taking a nap, right? Read, paint, walk, and watch creation in fullness. Just being real. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. So I ask you as the band comes up, are you tired? Are you exhausted? Are you experiencing the symptoms of hurry sickness? If you are, there is a solution and it's called Sabbath. Now, before you start filling in the blanks and making assumptions of what I am saying or what I'm not saying, hold on the pause until next week so we can take a deeper look in scripture of what it looks like. It's not about duty. It's about devotion. What you prioritize is what you see and value as most important. And we need to start intentionally and proactively aligning our lives with what's important to God and his design for us. If you're tired, if you're weary, if you're sick, if you're discontent, I want to encourage you to take this week. Talk if you have a spouse, if you're living with your children, to, to maybe someone in your community group. Start to discuss what it would look like to Sabbath. And I'm going to end with this. When Lauren and I started seeing the word of God come alive in us and, and Jesus is designed for us to rest and not do a religious Sabbath, but to literally stop and rest and start to delight in God and the things he's given us and to worship him, things have shifted and our lives are not the same. We're not there yet 
completely where we want to be in our Sabbath. Many, many of you, Sunday's going to be your day of rest. You come and worship God and you do what brings you joy and fills your tank and you say no to the things that wear you down and you spend quality time with those you love most and you do the things that fill your tank. Sunday is a work day for me. Sunday's not my Sabbath. So Friday from 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m., the Nelson family has Sabbath. Often our phones go off. We're not just watching TV. However, we will do a fun, we have kids, young kids. We'll do a fun movie night with popcorn and lots of ice cream and lots of chocolate syrup. And we feast and usually we go out to eat. We don't want to cook unless we desire to cook. I don't know with all these cooking shows, you know what we love to do? We love to do cooking tournaments with the kids. It's awesome. And we judge. Last night, my wife, or my wife, my daughter, Emery, five years old, sauteed grass from out front. <laughs> Lauren and I were the judges. Oh, we, did we eat it? Yes, we did. It's our daughter. She's five years old. <laughs> Friends, God's given us life to enjoy. And so we're going to worship the goodness of God. So much of the Sabbath is just intentionally stopping and resting in God's goodness. Thank you for listening to our weekly sermon. If you'd like to go deeper with another resource from our church, please check out our weekly impact Bible study podcast as well. Both of our podcasts are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.